The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Well, good morning, Love City. It's good to see all of you. I praise God for you. If you don't know, I'm Pastor Vince. I do a lot of uh, the Bible teaching around here, and that is what I've jumped up here to do today. And my intention, uh, out of kind of honor and consideration for the fact that you put off making the potato salad or whatever you have uh, going on to, to be here this morning, I'm going to try to I'm going to try to be a little shorter than normal. But you all know those you know the sayings about best intentions and all that. So don't hold me to it. I'm just telling you what I'm trying for. Amen. Uh, if you would turn with me to the book of Ruth. Uh, We're in chapter 3, stepping into chapter 3 today. Uh, We're going to look at verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible with you to follow along or an app, they will be on the screen behind me. And of course, we have Bibles to give away for free. If you don't own one, please let us give you a Bible. Really, that would be a blessing to us. Amen. So as you're finding Ruth, uh, I want to just be, I don't know how many people have told you already today, but I want to say, happy 4th of July. Amen. And uh, I also want to acknowledge the reality that it, it may be a little confusing for some of us on, on how to approach today from a, a thoughtful and biblical perspective. Maybe you wouldn't have even had a second thought about it in years past, but uh, the current cultural landscape, it could feel confusing. And here's the thing, you, you could find churches across our country today that, that represent the, the far ends of an ideological spectrum, and I want to take a moment to call our attention to those and to state plainly where we stand. I think that's important to do. Okay, so there will be churches today using their gathering, like what we're doing right now, to promote an an unhealthy over-allegiance to our country, as if the United States of America is God's special gift to the world, and we're basically Israel 2.0, okay? That's not true. Amen. Okay, good. It's a good start. There will also be churches today that will use their gathering to promote the idea that the United States of America is so utterly corrupted that celebrating today in any way is sinful. That's also wrong. Okay? We're going to be doing neither one of those. What we're going to do is we're going to express gratitude to God for sovereignly placing us here and now The book of Acts says the time and places of our habitation God establishes. Amen. He's in control. And we're going to be thankful that he's placed us here as a part of his eternal redemptive purposes. And I'm also thankful, I think we should be thankful, that we currently enjoy a high amount of freedom. And when I say that, I mean by historical and global standards. I know there's some of you here that would say, no, our freedoms and this and that. Just hold on a second. Chill out. I'm talking about global and historical standards. We enjoy a relatively high amount of freedom. Amen? By comparison, okay? So, in particular, around the ability to practice and share our faith publicly. Okay? There's places in the world today that if they just did what we're doing right now, which we oftentimes take for granted, they would be taking their life in their own hands. Okay, so what we're, we will neither idolize or demonize our country today. We're going to p- 
point people towards thankfulness for the good while acknowledging there is much still that could and should be better. And we want to commit to fulfilling our role as the church of Jesus Christ in all of that work. And the reason we can take this stance today is not because we're trying to ride some proverbial fence. Okay, It all comes down to where our hope is placed. We are not forced into either an inordinate allegiance or disdain for our country today because our hope has never been in the Constitution, in the Congress, in the courts, or in the president. It never has been. Our hope is firmly anchored into the bedrock of King Jesus and his perfect word. Our vision and mission supersedes national borders because our king told us to go into all the world and preach the good news of his gospel to all people. And this reality, where our hope is placed, it allows us to soberly assess both the good and the bad when it comes to our nation. It frees us from this kind of frantic fanaticism in either direction. Amen. So, as far as this gathering of God's people today goes, we're, we will not spend it bowing down to the USA like an idol or bashing it like a pinata. However, what I would like to do is together take a moment to lift our nation in prayer before the Lord and to ask for his will to be done here as it is in heaven. Because Jesus said that's a good and safe prayer. Amen? Will you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. First of all, we are thankful for access to your throne by that name. Thankful that we get to come, bring prayers of thanksgiving and prayers of request, and that they're welcome, that the blood of Jesus has made that possible. Lord, we lift our nation before you today. Uh, Lord, I don't want to get into a long laundry list out of my wisdom or my perspective. Lord, you know. (laughs) You know what we need. You know what healing looks like for the people and for this land. And and you know what your will is. You know what your purposes are for the United States of America. And so God, help us in our hearts to be more interested in understanding, seeking to walk out your purposes for us here and now than trying to form and fashion this by our own understanding or try to scream at people that see it differently than we do. Lord, we ask that your will would be done here as it is in heaven. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for where we are, when we are. And thank you that we have the opportunity today to do this right here. Thank thank you, Lord, that we can go out of here and go to barbecues and picnics and fireworks displays. And and when doors of opportunity open, we can speak freely the glorious hope of your gospel. Thank you for that opportunity. Lord, please forgive us for the times that we don't treat that as precious as it is, but also help us and empower us by your grace and your strength to walk in those opportunities when they're afforded to us. Lord, we love you only because you loved us first. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, let's get into God's word together because that should be the focal point every time we gather together as his people, regardless of the date on the calendar, right? The whole year belongs to him. Is that right? Whole year belongs to Jesus. So we're going to read Ruth 3. Verses 1 through 10, and uh, 
There's, there's some stuff in here, okay? So here we go. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz, when Boaz had eaten and drunk... And his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, may you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Praise God for his word. Well, that got pretty weird, didn't it? <laughs> Let's just tell the truth about it. <laughs> okay. Now, <laughs> what we're all giggling about, let's, let's take that part for just a second. I want to stick it on the shelf. We're, we're coming back, okay? And I want to show you why it's way more beautiful than weird in a minute. But if I launch into that, what I'm afraid will happen is we'll miss some really practical instruction here that I don't want to skip over, okay? So I believe there is some of the best, one of the best maps here in the scriptures for how to navigate the difficult waters of finding a spouse, okay? So I want us to take a minute to look at that. I don't want to miss that. Now, let me also say this real quick. I'm not sharing these truths with the assumption that every person here who is not married is looking for a spouse, okay? I want to make sure you know that's not what I'm doing. If, if you are one of those folks who Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 7, who has a gift of singleness and you're committed to a life of celibacy and singular service to the Lord, I want you to know that we here at Love City Church, we honor you. And, and we never want you to feel like that means something is wrong with you, okay? You are valued, and your special ability to minister and contribute to the church's mission is something that we really appreciate. The, the truth is, we will take, here, we will take as many intentionally set-apart single folks as the Lord would give us, and we're going to celebrate each one. Because the Bible says you have more freedom, obviously, to commit yourself to what it is Jesus is asking all of us to do. And there's a, there's a blessing in that. It's good. It would seem, if you read the scriptures, that that's the way the apostle Paul lived. And, and that brother did some stuff for the kingdom, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. Okay, so now on the other, but on the other side of that, I, I do want to say, if that is you, 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 you also have to realize that the majority of people are not gifted in that way. And statistically, most people will marry at some point. And so that means sometimes you might be tempted to feel like the odd one out. But, but if, if this is truly your calling and something the Lord's empowered you to do, that's something you have to settle in your own heart and mind with the Holy Spirit's help. Okay? So 
there's two sides to that coin. Now, what that means is, besides the intentionally unmarried, who else do we have in here? Well, we have not yet married folks. That means folks that have a desire for marriage. Uh, to whom these instructions we're going to look at uh, most obvious, obviously apply, but, but the application is honestly for everybody, okay? So you might be thinking, okay, I hear where he's going. I'm already married. I've been married a long time. Well, if you're already married, you, you may have children. You, and we need to be able to train them to think about this process of, of finding a spouse biblically. If, if you're married and don't have biological children, then Hopefully you're answering the call to disciple and invest in others as, as gospel parents. And so knowing how to talk about this is really important. This is a big issue for a lot of people. They need, they need help to understand how God's word would call them to navigate these things. And, and even to those who are intentionally single, you might say, yeah, that's me. I'm a 1 Corinthians 7, intentionally single person. So whatever you're about to say about navigating the waters of finding a spouse obviously doesn't apply to me. Well, the point of that intentional singleness is to have more freedom to invest in discipling others, right? And so you need a biblical understanding of these things in order to help train others. That's what you should be doing with that extra free time. Amen. Okay? All right. Now let me say this. This is an important distinction. The, the very practical instruction I want us to see here, it is more descriptive than prescriptive, but I would argue that it, it couldn't be more clear. And, and when I make that distinction, let me just take a second to unpack that. When I say it's descriptive more than prescriptive, okay, a prescriptive instruction in the scriptures, prescriptive, what's that remind you of? A prescription, that means the Bible is saying clearly, do this or don't do this, okay? That's prescriptive. Now, there's also instruction in the scriptures that is descriptive, and that means we, we see from example how we should or shouldn't conduct ourselves. Does that make sense? This is more descriptive, but I think it's really, really clear. It, it, there's... Some principles we can draw from this that I feel real solid standing on, okay? So what, the question to kind of frame this out, I think we should ask ourselves, is what drew these two towards each other? I'm talking about Ruth and Boaz, okay? And here's what we know. We know from last week and how this is unpacked. These two had gotten to know each other over both the barley and the wheat harvest, okay? So they spent some significant real time together, all right? You, as you read this, you, it might sound like this happens in four days. It doesn't, okay? Happens over the course of probably some months, at least, okay? All right. So what, what drew them to each other? What caught the other's attention? And if you've been tracking with us through the story, you're, you probably already have some answers to that, but and there's maybe more that could be said, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to key in on a, a few things. In terms of what caught, and let, let me just take a second to say this. What we just saw here, okay, Ruth going in, uncovering his feet, all of that. Basically, this is, this is Ruth saying, I'm going to explain this more later, but just so you're not lost up until then. This is Ruth saying, I'm asking you to exercise the the responsibilities of a kinsman redeemer. When she says close relative there, cover me with your covering because you're a close relative, that's Goel, it's kinsman redeemer. Same, all, all the same stuff that we've been talking about from the beginning of the book, okay? It's that idea that because Ruth's husband was dead uh, and because he had no more brothers that she could marry in order to raise up a posterity, that now you, you start going down the family line and Boaz is close. And so she's, she's come and she's asking him to, basically redeem her, to buy the land that belonged to her husband and his father, 
so that they can raise up children in the name of that dead spouse. It shows a lot about how much God cares about family legacy. Okay? So think about that. There's some other descriptive uh, instruction in that that we can't get into today, but worth mentioning. Okay? So, so what, what, made it, what made it that Ruth was open to this idea of going and asking Boaz to exercise this responsibility of being a kinsman redeemer? Well, I'm going to submit to you a few things. I think, first of all, he was humble. Boaz was humble. Let me, let me make sure I'm saying it real plain. What, what made Ruth trust Boaz and what attracted Ruth to Boaz? That she would want him to take her in marriage in order to redeem her as the kinsman. I think one thing is clear. He was, he was humble. Where do we see that? Well, we've seen it all the way up through this thing, right? We see Boaz treating his workers with respect. We see Boaz sitting and having meals with the workers out in the field house. We see the way he treats Ruth, the immigrant uh, widow that many would have just either used or abused, trampled upon. We also see here, the last thing Boaz says is, you've done a great honor to me by coming to me about this as opposed to some younger man, whether he was rich or poor. So we see here there's some kind of age discrepancy between Ruth and Boaz. We don't know for sure what it is. But what we don't see Boaz do is he wakes up startled at the, at the, you know, sleeping at the foot of the heap of grain. He wakes up startled and sees Ruth there. What we don't see him say is, ah, you finally come to cuddle with the silver fox, have you? Right? His response is humble. He's, he's honored and he's thankful. Boaz is humble. He wasn't expecting this. Okay? Which is part of why I would say this, and and a lot of commentators will say this, we have a hard time accounting for how this went down. This is weird, and it was dangerous. Because if Boaz was any less of a godly man or humble man, he could have done what many men would have done, which would be assume he had some right to something in that scenario. You understand what I'm saying? Praise God. He was a humble and godly man. And so we see his response instead. Boaz was humble. He was hardworking. Boaz knew how to handle his business. Boaz, how do we say that? Well, he's, he's out in the fields all the time taking a personal interest in what's happening. He's not sitting up in some plush, you know, Villa somewhere, getting fanned with palm fronds while everyone's out there working. He's out in the midst of the people doing the work, and he is at the threshing floor. He's down there either waiting, you know, why is it at night? Well, a lot of times harvest was done at day, the the threshing was done at night. It's very hard work. He was there not only probably waiting his turn to use the threshing floor, which would have been a kind of a low depressed area, probably up high where the wind could catch the chaff as they beat it out so that the good stuff, the seed would fall and then the waste would blow away. That was the process of threshing, all done by hand. Seriously hard work. And he wasn't just there to do that work, but he was also probably sleeping at the bottom of the heap of grain because, remember, this is in the time of the judges where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes in Israel. This was not a time where overall most everybody was obeying the precepts of God. And so it wasn't uncommon for people to come and just steal what they wanted. 
And so we don't get the idea here that Boaz is kind of a, a happy-go-lucky, let's just do whatever we want. Boaz knew about responsibility. Boaz was a hard worker. And he was willing to protect. Amen. I think these things probably caught Ruth's attention. And we also know he was generous. We've gone over that. We've got a whole sermon that kind of unpacked that. But multiple times we see the generosity of Boaz and the way he conducts himself, in particular towards Ruth. And so I'm saying he was humble and hardworking and he was generous. And there's more, but in short, what I'd like to say, what I'd like to label this is, is maybe Boaz's most attractive quality is that he was godly. Boaz was godly. We can see that. Now, what, what made Boaz honored by Ruth coming as opposed to being trying to figure out some way to tell her, oh, no, I'm not interested, <laughs> right? That would have been a different storyline. Um, you should go home, right? <laughs> uh, what, what stood out to Boaz? Well, I think Ruth was humble. <laughs> We're going somewhere with this. Ruth was humble. How do we know that? When, when Boaz first came and spoke to her and showed her any kind of kindness, what was her response? I can't believe you're talking to me like this because you're, you're treating me with the same kind of respect you treat these Israelite working women that you have, but I'm not like them. I know I'm a Moabite and a widow, and I know that most men in Israel would treat me like a dog. Thank you for your kindness and generosity to me. He goes further. He, he doesn't just let her work in his fields and drink from the jars of, of, of water that his workers have brought up, but he, he feeds her and he instructs his workers to make sure Drop some extra for her. Don't make it hard on her. Don't, don't make her just pick up the scraps, which is what gleaning normally was. Make it easy for her. Help her. And he sends her home with far more than you would expect to get from a day of gleaning. We see that Ruth was, was humble. Um, we also see that Ruth was hardworking pattern here. Do you find it yet? Ruth was a hard worker. She didn't, she didn't get to Israel and, and take some weeks off to figure out you know, what she felt like doing. They got to Israel and she realized, if I don't go out here and glean, Naomi, the mother-in-law that I committed to stay with and to honor, is going to starve and so am I. So even though it's taking my life in my hands in the current cultural context, I'm going to go out into these fields, I'm going to find some grain. And she did. And it caught Boaz's attention all the way back in the beginning chapters. Who is, who, who's, who is this woman out here working like this? She wasn't afraid of hard work. Ruth was humble. She was hardworking. And Ruth was generous. We talked about that. She had some lunch left over from the meal that Boaz provided. What did she do? Did she eat it later as a snack? Did she scarf it all down not knowing when her next made meal would be. No, she wrapped it up and took it home to her mother-in-law, Naomi, along with the gleanings that she had gotten. Ruth was humble, hardworking, and generous. What am I saying? In short, Ruth was godly. Ruth was godly. And here's what I want you to see, guys. These, these weren't followers of God in word only. And they knew that about each other. They had taken the time to see the fruit this wasn't just, oh yeah, I'm a follower of the God of Israel from Boaz or Ruth. 
They, they took the time to see about one another that they were hardworking and humble and generous, to see how they dealt with other people in real life scenarios. Amen? Some wisdom in that. They weren't followers of God in word only. They took time to see the fruit. And there's been many times where someone will come to me and say something close to this. Hey, hey, Pastor Vince, I want to let you know, um, I, I met this person and I really think Jesus brought them into my life. Okay, I, we can start there. But let me submit to you. Let me see if you guys can guess. Love City, what, what do you think my first question is when someone says something like that to me? What do you think the first thing I want to know about every single time? I heard some, do they love Jesus? Anybody else? Something along those lines. Are they a committed follower of Christ? I've stopped asking, are they a Christian? That's not specific enough. I'll ask, well, are they a committed follower of Christ? That's the first thing I want to know. It's real important. It's the most important. It's, it's the foundation upon all the other things that you could consider in this whole process should, should rest upon that foundation. It's the only one truly that is a non-negotiable for the believer. And, and let me just save you the trouble of any, so if, if, if we're going to have this conversation soon or, or maybe, you know, in the future, let me just save you the trouble because if I ask you, are they a committed follower of Christ? Any iteration of this answer, anything close to, well, you know, they believe in God and they said they'd come to church with me. Anything close to that whatsoever and all my pastoral spidey senses are going to be tingling just like your feet when you sit on the toilet too long looking at your phone. You know that feeling? Am I the only one that's almost come out of the bathroom crippled before? Do I just have poor circulation? Or has other people looked at too many memes and been stood up like, oh, oh. You know, that type of situation. That tingling feeling is going to be going off in my brain, brainstem, and all of my spinal column as a pastor. If your answer is anything like, well, you know, they said they believe in God, and they said they'd come to church with me if I want them to. No. That's not what we're looking for. That's not a committed Christ follower. Now, let me just say this. You might be saying, well, why? Why are you, why are you talking like that? Like that? Be- <laughs> because, friends, hear me. Romantic relationships are not an evangelism strategy. They're not. Now, I also want to say this. Do I know that this church is full of stories of married couples where God redeemed a less than ideal scenario in this regard. Do I know that that's true? Yes, I know that that's true. So if that was, if, if you're having a mental argument with me right now and that was your argument, well, I know this and such person and this and such person and this and such couple and, they, you know, it wasn't, it, they weren't committed Christians or one of them wasn't a committed Christian and it's worked out great today. Well, bully Sure, I know that. But what you probably don't know is what I know, that there's an equal amount of stories of extreme pain and suffering that results from unequally yoked relationships and marriages. 
You probably haven't heard as much about that as I have. The practicality of how this stuff works out. And in any case, we don't decide if we're going to obey God and trust his way to be best for us based on whether we know some people who didn't do that and it worked out okay for them. That's not how this works. Part of what we have to decide is, do we believe what God says to do is for our best and what God says not to do is for our best? Have we seen enough in his character and in the revelation of his love and care and compassion for us in Christ that we're going to trust when he puts a fence up, it's for our good. And if I jump that thing, it's going to hurt me. That's a lot of what all of this comes down to in this area of your life and, and all the rest. What do you believe about the boundaries of God? That they are benevolent and from his kindness and love? Or they're because he's some kind of moral dictator that just likes to ruin the party? What do you really think about that? I know all of you are smart enough to know what the right answer is if I ask you to raise your hand, but I'm asking you to assess your heart about it. And then assess your behavior, and, and that's really how you find out how you really live, which is kind of what I'm getting to, or how you, what you, really, how you live really determines kind of what you actually believe, and that's what I'm getting to with... This, this time idea of Ruth and Boaz being able to observe each other in real life situations. It wasn't like they said, hey, you want to date each other? And then everyone's on their best behavior trying to impress the other person. That's not, and I'm not getting too far into all that. And, and you know, I know, gosh, that's a, <laughs> that's a, a big can of worms itself right at this moment. I'm, I'm just, these principles apply kind of no matter the the details of how you go at that what i just said this stuff matters this is important okay and that's why if you go through the premarital process here at love city church you're going to be asked at least four different ways if this person that you want to marry is a committed christian and you're going to be and you're going to be forced to provide evidence We're going to make you think about it. We're going to make you push beyond, well, they said they believe in God and, and they're hot. Like Pastor Vince, he said he believes in God. He has a six pack and a man bun. I don't know what we're talking about here. Right? <laughs> or vice versa, <laughs> whatever. Interestingly, in all of this buildup to what, you know, spoiler alert, if you don't know this, I, I know I've been trying to, it's been, this has been the hardest book I've ever preached in this regard, staying out of the rest of it as I try to break it down for it. It's like, but spoiler alert, they're going to get married. Okay. That's where we're headed. All right. So, but this whole run up in all that is said about everything leading up to this, you never hear any mention of physical attributes. Not one. Boaz is going to go on to say in the next couple of verses, it's known by everybody you're a woman of excellence. That's part of why I'm going to do what you're asking me to do. Boaz's character is highly regarded and clearly laid out here. We don't know what Boaz and Ruth look like, Okay. There is, in here, there is no Song of Solomon stuff about hair like flocks of goats or, or that Ruth was shaped like a bundle of wheat. None of that's in here. You might say, well, yeah, those are Bible verses too. Yeah, about married folks. 
That's when you get into exploring all, all that fun terrain. Okay? Up to the point of marriage, what you, if you're smart, if you're wise, if you're biblically minded, you're going to be focused on character stuff. First and foremost, are they godly? Are they committed Christ followers? Not just do they know enough of the right language to satiate your conscience because they're hot, right? And here's, I want to say this, I've got to be balanced and, and I want to be, I'm not suggesting that physical attributes play no part in how someone may catch our attention initially. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with physical attraction. Don't get, don't, I'm not, don't make me say more than I'm saying. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that the overall ranking of priorities in how you assess these things is a matter of wisdom and godly discipline. That's what I'm saying. And, and there's been times when talking like this, I've had people say, or I've heard other people debating this, and it'll be someone talking like I'm talking, this accusation will come, well, you're being unrealistic. And basically what they're saying is, you know, put a, put a big group of people in a room, you, you, don't, you don't see one another's character from across the room, and that's what kind of sorts out who you're going to go talk to. Okay, that's fair. I understand that who you decide to talk to first in a large room of people could be based on some physical attributes, but everything after that should be based first and foremost on these character issues, on godliness, okay? And, and when someone would say to me, well, you're, you're being unrealistic, I, well, my answer to that is maybe you're being irresponsible. What's up? Right? Take responsibility for how you see this whole subject and how you rate and sift people you would consider as a potential spouse. You're not a victim here. Take responsibility for that. You can decide how you're going to think about this. Amen. I know I just ticked some people off, right? Cash me outside if you need to, and we can chat about it, but None of what the scriptures emphasize and what brought Ruth and Boaz together had anything to do with physical attributes. And I think the, 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 if we went broader than this, what we see descriptively here, some of it we'll see prescriptively elsewhere in the scriptures. What should be important to us when it comes to who we're going to covenantly, con covenantally connect ourselves to for life. You need to like more than their eyes and their shape. <laughs> There needs to be more to it than that, a lot more. Now, the, the humility piece that I, you know, I kind of boiled it all down to, generally, they were both godly, genuinely godly, and they could tell that because over time they were able to observe how they conducted themselves in real-world situations, okay? But, but there's this humility piece that I listed first for both of them, and that runs a lot deeper, and, and I honestly believe is the key to seeing the true beauty in this passage, okay? Now, when I said... I started this off by saying this got weird, right? We're, we're all talking about verse 9, okay? Let's call verse 9 out. <laughs> he said, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative, okay? That was right after she uncovered his feet and laid down by them. All right. Here's what we need to see. And I already, because I didn't want you to be distracted thinking about it the whole time, I kind of broke into this earlier to lay some foundation, but... 
This is not as sketchy as it looks on the surface to our Western eyes. Okay? When she says you are a close relative, again, I, I just, I've kind of already explained this. I'm just going to do it again quickly. <clears throat> it's, it's that relative word. That's, that's goel. That's the redeemer. That's, that's the, God had put in the law the ability for a widowed woman to either marry her dead husband's brother. So that, and, and then what would happen is if they had children together, those children were raised to receive the inheritance in the name of the dead husband. It was a way to preserve family lines when tragedy hit, okay? And, and to make sure the land that was attributed to different families stayed in those families as much as possible. Uh, there's times when it didn't, and, and people would have to sell their land and all of that, but this, God had put these, <clears throat> really these elements of mercy into the law to kind of soften the sting of the reality that that the name and the land, the inheritance passed down from fathers to sons, okay? That, that left widows in a bad spot. But that's part of why this kinsman redeemer uh, possibility was here. So this is what, this is what she comes and, and asks for. This is, not, <clears throat> this is not a proposition in that moment of a, of a sec, in, in a sexual sense, okay? She's not coming there and laying at his feet and the, and the message being, I'm here for a good time at the threshing floor, okay? And, and it could seem that way because of Naomi telling her to put on her best dress and make sure she, you know, doesn't smell like garbage water, you know, like, but that's, but really what we have here is not her proposing something sexual in that moment, but proposing something much larger and longer than that. <laughs> Marriage underneath the law of the kinsman redeemer, Okay. And, and what we see her in doing it this way, and this is where the wisdom of, of Naomi comes in. It, it was, again, this whole laying at the feet thing, we're like, what? You know, so, so weird. But this, customarily in that time, it wasn't uncommon for a, a slave or a servant to lay at the feet of their master and to take some of their cover as a sign of, of submission and commitment to them. This, this wouldn't have been as weird to them as it is to us, and that's the way she comes. So instead of um, marching in the room in the middle of Boaz trying to, you know, have something to eat, have something to drink, or marching out into the field one day and and saying, "I'm I'm here to claim my right. You need to do what you're supposed to do. You need to fulfill your responsibility, Boaz, as the kinsman redeemer." Instead of her coming at him like that, what she does instead is comes with great humility and with an incredible sign of submission. Again, part of why we could, we could know it was safe for Boaz to take her up on this. What we don't have here is a gold digger. Well, we have some here, someone that, that is a true God follower and understands the right way to go about these things. This was a sign of submission and it was a request for the redemption that the law provided for. That's what we see happening in verses 8 and 9. And, and I want to make sure I say this, and almost every commentator I read on it was made sure to say this as people are trying to understand what's going on here. The fact that, the, the fact that this isn't that, it's st it still doesn't mean that this is meant to be reproduced, okay? This, is, this was customary, and it had specific meaning in the time, okay? So what, what am I saying? I'm saying, ladies, don't be sneaking up on dudes at night and uncovering their feet. That's a hard no. 
okay? But guys, just in case some sweet Christian girl doesn't have a pastor willing to tell her the truth like that, I want you to keep your feet on fleek, just in case. Get your toenails right, right? Keep them clean, because you never know what's going to happen. You guys feel me on that? Keep your feet right. Amen. Just, just, just anyways, right? Maybe, maybe there's never a girl showed up, laid down at your feet trying to get you to marry her, but, you know, why not? <laughs> now, I want you to know, I've, I have read this passage dozens, if not hundreds of times, but it was only this week that something struck me I had not thought of, hadn't seen before here. And so, uh, I want to show that to you. It's, it is verse 9, and it has to do with this request from Ruth. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. I'm going to, as I dive into this idea, and this is us kind of heading for home plate, a, a kind of summary statement is this, that when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to following Jesus, you have to dress for success. I realize most of you are like, this is so left field. Where is he going? I'm, I'm, we're all going to get there together. It's going to be awesome. Okay? But when it comes to following Jesus, you have to dress for success. Now, I want you to hear me out and, and first hear me when I say that doesn't mean what you might think it means. Okay? Because I used to think that way. I was taught early on in my Christian walk that if I didn't wear a suit to gather with God's people, I was dishonoring him. You know, there, was, there would be things said like, well, if you were going to meet the President of the United States, you'd wear a suit, wouldn't you? So why wouldn't you wear a suit when you come to the house of, of God? Normally it was said like G-A-W-D. Um, so here's the thing. And, and that, that's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. If you, if you want to come to Love City Church and wear a suit, you f- feel good about that, you enjoy that, and, and praise God, you're totally welcome. Uh, but if you don't have a suit, you are also welcome, <laughs> If you've never seen a suit, you're welcome. If, if, if the best you got is some sweatpants, you're welcome, and we love you. Um, I, I know you guys don't know how funny me bringing that up is, because I, I used to get my suits at K&G. Who knows what K&G is? Okay. If you don't, it, well, it doesn't matter. If I go into describing that, I'll get myself in trouble. But here's, the, here's, what, here's what you do need to know, just to envision. Just imagine if, this, if I was still doing this today, if I still believe that. I had suits, I'm talking like some bright colors, pinstripes. I had suits with five, maybe six buttons in the front. You know what I'm talking about? I look like a pale Steve Harvey wannabe. That's, 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 how, you know, that's how I thought I needed to come to the Lord. I was, I was, I'd been taught that the outward adornment was very important. Thankfully, I don't believe that anymore. But, so that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is, is some precious gospel truth that's staring at us uh, right here in, in what I would say is, is one of the seemingly weirdest verses in the Bible, in verses 8 and 9. And, and <clears> There's <throat> a lot of preface, much more than I normally do, but just I want you to know this. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to admit that I'm a little bit out on a branch here, be, but... But I do believe that the Holy Spirit showed me this, and, and, and the more I thought and prayed about it, the more peace I felt about pulling this thread with you today. I did look hard, and I could not find any commentators who laid this out this way, but I honestly can't imagine that no one else has, has pointed it out before. So once I'm through this and you see what I'm doing, if you can find anybody that's preached it, you got audio, you can find a commentary or anything, send it to me. I'd be really, I'd be soaked to read or hear it, Okay. 
The closest that I saw someone come to touching where I'm going here was a commentator by the name of Clark. And here's what he said. This will open this, this up, this idea. He said, even to the present day, when a Jew marries a woman, he throws the skirt or end of his talith over her to signify that he has taken her under his protection. And continues, in Ezekiel 16.8, God uses the same terminology in relation to Israel. I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. In some of your translations, even here in verse 9, when she says, cover me, with, you know, take your cover and cover me, some of your translations might even say wing. Some translated it that way. So, <clears throat> some talk about covering like, a, like his coat or, or a blanket, but the whole idea, whether it's the wing or the, or the, the fabric, is it's, it's the idea of, of covering up of vulnerability or shame and to protect. That's, that's what's here, okay? And, and so I thought about that, and I thought about how, and I, I, I know I ripped off last week about how Boaz is a kinsman redeemer, the, the, the connections to and the, the parallels with Jesus are, there's so many, it's, it's like, it's not one of those things where you're straining to find them, it's like, you're probably going to forget some, there's so many. And there's more going on in Ruth even than just that reflection from Boaz, and I'm, I'm going to show you that as we move forward through the book, but what her talking about that covering, and what, what that tent seems to mean, it got me thinking about what God did with Adam and Eve, when they tried to sew together fig leaves to cover their shame. What did he do? God sacrificed some animals and, and he made coverings for them from the skin. And this thread of God's redemption and covering, okay? It, it, covering us in his righteousness even, it, it keeps coming up. Let me go on a little journey with me here. I'm, I'm gonna rip off some scriptures, okay? I just wanna show you I'm. I said I'm out on a branch, but that's just me kind of being humble about it. I'm telling you this is in here. Listen to this. Psalm 132, verse 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. I'm talking about this idea of covering, clothing with righteousness, covering up shame and vulnerability, the protection of God, the righteousness of God, and this, this, the way it's compared to being covered by clothing or uh, the, the wing or Whatever, okay? So it says, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Zechariah 3, 3 through 4. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I will put rich garments on you. Matthew 22, 1 through 14. There's a wedding feast where a king, he invites everybody to come to the wedding. And, and you guys know probably the first part. That's pretty common. It's like, well, nobody wants to come because they're busy. So he's like, all right, go back out into the highways and byways, get everybody. And they do and they bring them in. But then there's this weird part at the end where the, the, the guy notices, the host of the feast notices there's a guy in there without wedding garments. He says, how'd you get in here? You're not wearing the right clothes. How'd you get in here? Get him out of here. Cast him out where there's going to be darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. What the heck does that mean? What, what's the, what are the wedding garments? Well, in that time, it was customary that when you came in, the host provided wedding garments for people. So if you're rolling around in the party not wearing the wedding garments that he provided, it, it says something like, well, I think my clothes are better than the clothes you were providing, or I don't really need what you were giving out. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. 
Luke 24, 49, Jesus telling his disciples, remain in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I'm, I'm pulling a thread for you through all the scriptures. You, you hear what I'm doing? We're not done. 1 Corinthians 15, 53 through 55, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. 2 Corinthians 2, 3 through 4. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened but because we do not wish to be unclothed but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And this example gets used a lot, doesn't it? Galatians 3.27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Revelation 16.15, behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he, get this, blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Hmm. I, I just went Genesis to Revelation for you. How we doing? Well, if, if you're saying, well, I don't know, man. I don't know if I'm buying this yet. I kind of think you're stretching. Well, it gets even more specific. Here's one for you. Try this on for size. Isaiah 61, verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Ooh, ooh. Now, now, if you're if you're an astute Bible student and you're someone that just doesn't take a preacher's word for it because he's excited about it, I'm proud of you. Praise God. So, if what you're thinking right now is, well, what's the context of that in Isaiah? Sure, that lines up with your thesis, but there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. You can go find just about anything, line up with anything, right? What actually is happening in Isaiah 61? Does that really tie in with kind of this place you're going, this this thing you're trying to show us? Well, I'm going to let you judge. That was Isaiah 61 verse 10. Okay? I'm talking about there's this, there's this idea of God clothing us in righteousness, of covering us with righteousness because of Christ, and that it's being pointed to all the way back in Ruth with this beautiful redemption story between her and Boaz. That's what I'm trying to get to. What I'm trying to get to is that real weird part for us that makes us feel uneasy about feet getting uncovered, and she's talking about, well, put your cover over me, and we're like, I'm gonna read, let me skip that and get to the wedding part. I like that. That it's actually one of the, it's pointing to one of the most beautiful concepts in all the scriptures. It's another part of that crimson thread of the gospel that runs from Genesis to Revelation that is largely oftentimes been missed. I don't know why, but here it is. Okay, Th- that, one's, that one's good, right? Let me read it again. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he's clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. What is, is that, does that line up with what you're talking about? Let me read you 61 verse 1. Same chapter. This is how that chapter starts. See if this sounds familiar. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the humble. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Woo! What's that from? That's when Jesus stood up in the temple and rode from, read from the scroll of Isaiah, and it basically was him going, Yoo-hoo! This is about me. Try to tell me I'm stretching for something. There ain't no stretch here. That's what it's about, (laughs) okay? 
Amen. Them verses are about Christ. John 19, 23-24, consider this. The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also the coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout, so that they said, therefore, to one another, let us not rend it, let's not tear it apart, we'll cast lots for it. Whose shall it be? That the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith... They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. Let me ask you this. Why do you think there was specific prophecy about the clothing of Jesus? You think that's just, do you think the Bible included these details just because it wanted to fill up some, some pages? Oh, come on now. No. This thread, pun intended, uh-huh, this thread that I'm talking about, it runs from Genesis to Revelation, folks. This idea of us being mercifully covered by garments that are not our own. The first Adam tried to cover his sin and shame by making clothes out of fig leaves. The second Adam let himself be stripped naked so he could enrobe us in his righteousness and save us from our sin and shame. And what does this have to do with the weirdness on the threshing floor? I'm hoping it's pretty clear by now, but if not, let me, it's, friends, what does this have to do with it? It's got everything to do with it. Don't you see? I don't know what Naomi thought Ruth putting on her best clothes was going to accomplish, right? It was dark and in the middle of the night at the threshing floor. If this dress had pretty little flower prints on it, Boaz probably couldn't even see it. So what was the point of all that? I don't know what Naomi was thinking. I don't know what Ruth thought, but God knew that this deal right here was going to show us exactly how we must come to him for redemption. See, Ruth had her best clothes on, but she still knew she needed Boaz to cover her with his covering. Her best clothes wasn't going to get it done. She needed someone else's covering. Isaiah keys in on this idea again in chapter 64. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. I couldn't believe you guys sang that song that brought up the rags earlier, man. Man, that was good. Nobody knew we were going. I kept this top secret. I have not, I couldn't wait to get here and bust this out on you. And I wasn't letting anybody get a sneak peek. But it says, Isaiah brings that idea. All of us become unclean. Our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. You can't come to God with your best dress on. You can't come to God with your best suit on. Your works, your best attempt at righteousness on your own, and think that's going to get it done. He's going to have to cover you with his. And this is the gospel, friends. We can't clean ourselves up or dress ourselves up or, or make ourselves up pretty enough to cover the fact that we are broken sinners. So many people think what God wants is for them to do what they do at a funeral home and try to make our dead selves look presentable. No. God does not want made-up corpses. He wants to give us new life and dress us in robes of righteousness that we could never afford on our own. That's what he's looking to do with us. 
Not put makeup on corpses. Are you calling me a corpse? Yes, without Christ, absolutely. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All the righteousness that we've tried to put forth as proof that we're worthy of God's love, Isaiah said it's like filthy rags. It's not going to work. You need someone else that's covering. How you dress for success when it comes to following Jesus. That's how I kind of started this little journey here. How do you do that? You have to come clothed in humility. You have to come clothed in humility. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Guys, I don't have any idea if Ruth fully understood the eternal significance of this example that she sets forth here. As a matter of fact, I doubt it. I doubt Ruth understood all of what was happening here. I doubt Naomi did. I don't think Boaz probably did, but it doesn't change this fact. God knew that one of the ways he was going to explain salvation throughout his scriptures was as a redemptive covering that we have to humbly receive. God did know the details of this. And what, what details were recorded and what it should point us to. All of this leads us to this summary, and I'm done. I know. I did a terrible job trying to preach short. You guys knew that was going to happen anyways. I'm sorry. Genuinely, I, I'll keep trying. I, I put less notes in like, okay, we got it. It just, then this happens. So, <laughs> praise the Lord. Here's all this brings us down. I'm going to summarize this for you. And then we're going to pray. Take communion. Jesus was stripped so you could be covered. This points us forward to that. If you haven't received that covering by faith, I pray genuinely that you will today. And if you've had his righteous robes draped across your shoulders, I pray that you will rejoice in them forever but not just rejoice in them, that you will be quick to tell others that he will cover them too. That's our hope. That's our prayer. Amen? Praise God. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, thank you. <laughs> thank you that you did not construct your word in such a way that all of the gems just lay upon the surface of the ground. <laughs> thank you that you, you've woven layers of depth and beauty into your word that you've created for us. The possibility to read the book of Ruth dozens, maybe hundreds of times and come back to it again and be astounded at what we see. Thank you that your word is living and active. Thank you, Lord, that we can study your word for all the rest of time. We're not going to exhaust all that's there because you have, you have woven your very essence into your word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Lord, let the wonder of that truth uh, continue to wash over us, continue to shape the way we think about your word, the way we think about the value of gathering like this for Bible teaching. Lord, let us never think that we've gotten to the bottom of this thing. Lord, also please help us. Help us please to see the beauty of this truth, to see Ruth requesting to be covered with this garment is the same request that we, every person needs to come and make of you. You're the redeemer. You're the ultimate redeemer. You're the best redeemer. You're the only one that can take people dead in their sins, raise them to new life, 
and put robes of righteousness on them that they never could have earned for themselves. Lord, I thank you that you take joy in that. I thank you that the invitation for that is as wide as those who would come and trust and believe you. Lord, help us to be heralds of that truth. Joyous heralds, excited heralds. (laughs) I love you, Master. Thank you for what you've worked in us today. I ask you to seal it by your spirit. May it cause growth for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.